0: If you have a Bible, let's open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to look at starting in verse 17. And we're going to go into chapter 3 as we're just moving our way through these two letters, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, verse by verse, chunk by chunk as we move forward. Uh, and so open up to 1 Thessalonians. If you have no idea where that is, feel free to use the table of contents. There's also a pew Bible there. You're going to go to uh, the New Testament. You'll you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You'll keep flipping. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then you will get to 1 Thessalonians there. Remember, we're in the section of the New Testament that is saying someone's coming again. And so as we've left the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're now in this New Testament letter which is talking about, and actually one of the themes of 1 and 2 Thessalonians is the return of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And so we're in that section there that is proclaiming the return of the Lord. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 starting in verse 17 And while you're opening there, you may not remember this, but a little over a year ago, there was actually a massive cell phone outage in the Southeast that impacted millions of people. It was around September of last year, and it didn't last very long, but for a brief window of time, all cell phone communication was cut for a period of time, and tons of people had to figure out how to cope with something that had just become kind of a second hand to them, you know, being able to to have a a cell phone and this thing that's become integral to our daily lives. And we had a similar situation here in our own backyard a few months ago when Verizon cut out for a few uh, hours one morning. You may remember that. I know I did. I was driving to Huntsville for a meeting, and I couldn't call and text home. I mean, my phone just went completely dead. It would not connect at all. And the whole time as I was driving there, I was worried, well, what if something happens to... Rebecca or my family, what if something bad happens while we're apart and I can't get in touch with them? And as I was thinking about that, I knew it was an irrational fear because there were a million places where I could, like, pull over and use a landline or send a direct message over social media or just email back and forth. I and mean, it was a very irrational feel fear. But in that moment, I'm like, the way that I normally get in touch and the way that I normally keep up with how are things going while I'm going to be away all day was suddenly taken away from me, and I felt this anxiety. When you think about this, have you ever thought about how we take this, like, instant communication for granted. We just take it for granted. We're able to send a text or send a message or, you know, just instantaneous. We just take it for granted. But it's actually a relatively recent innovation and it's been revolutionary in so many ways. I remember seeing a a short documentary on World War II recently and it interviewed families of soldiers. And one thing that was consistently mentioned was the importance of just the mail just receiving a letter being able to send and receive a letter where loved ones and family members would write letters to their soldiers on the battlefield asking about how they were doing overseas in harms way and they would send that letter and then what would they do they just wait no way to know are they still alive and is this letter going to actually get to them you send it and you just waited no cell phones, no email, no social media, just paper letters and patience, waiting for some sort of reply, waiting to hear that everything is okay. And you can imagine that anxiety that's building up as you know that the one that you love is overseas in harm's way. And I just want to know, are you doing okay? Something, anything, and just having to wait. Now I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the Apostle Paul. He loved the Christians in this little church at Thessalonica, this group this gathering of believers in this massive city in Macedonia, and he was worried about them. He had been forced to flee the city and he knew that they faced fierce opposition for following Christ. In many ways. They were like soldiers on the front lines of the spiritual battlefield, as it were. And he had wanted to visit them, but it seemed like every attempt he made was being frustrated and sidelined. And so he sent his good friend and ministry companion Timothy to make the trip by foot to visit them and to bring a report back on their situation. many ways, like Timothy was like a a letter on foot. I'm going to send this word out, and I would love to hear a report back. And this was a costly sacrifice for Paul to make. He was in Athens at the time, and the ancient home of philosophy and Greek mythology was hostile to the gospel. He was in this kind of ancient Near Eastern Greco-Roman world, and as he sent Timothy away, it's like losing his right-hand man, his ministry companion. But he sent Timothy anyway because the Thessalonians were dear to him. And you can almost imagine as he sends Timothy away, he may have been wondering, is Timothy going to make it? Were his brothers and sisters in the faith still doing okay? Had persecution weakened their resolve? Have they given in to pressure? Have they returned to their pagan idolatry? Did they survive the suffering that we all knew was going to come their way? How are they doing? And then just having to wait for Timothy to come back. He wished that he could find out those answers in person, but all he could do was wait. And so let's read about what happened in the meantime as he is waiting for Timothy to come back. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, reported that you always remembered us kindly and longed to see us as we longed to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through our faith. And We'll pick up there next week. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. I'm grateful for that. And I hope you are as well. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Please pray with me. Father, we come before you and we ask that you would take these words by the power of your Holy Spirit and apply them to our hearts and our minds and our lives. Even if it steps on our toes a little bit, Lord, we pray that you would conform us more and more to the image of your Son. And Father, may we revel in your Son, revel in Christ and Father, help us to see our need for him in all things. We look to you, and we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Now passages like this are kind of tricky to preach through, and I've, i spent the vast majority of this week just kind of beating my head against the wall. Like, how in the world do you actually preach a text like this? Because what it seems like is just some personal narrative between a few people that we've never met because they've lived 2,000 years ago. But we remember that these words have been kept safe for us in the Bible because they give us a case study actually in how we're to interact with each other as Christians, but also interact with the world around us for the sake of Christ. And these passages are also helpful because they remind us that even the Apostle Paul faced difficulty and discouragement as he sought to minister to others. You know, we think about Paul as like this kind of trailblazing guy. Nothing ever got to him and But we read passages like this and we see his heart and we see how he's interacting with others. And if you didn't catch it, you can take what Paul is talking about here and really divide it into two contrasting categories. He talks about a ministry that's being hindered in some way, but also a ministry that's hopeful. And so those are our two points that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see a hindered ministry, but we're going to see a hopeful ministry. And as you think about this word ministry, like how in the world do you define that? What do we think about that? It comes from the Greek word diakonion, which, which you get the word deacon from. And it means service or contribution. And so when you think about both of these categories, a hindered ministry but a hopeful ministry, what they end up doing is they actually lead us back to the exact same place, which is the gospel. And so let's look at our first point, a hindered ministry, as you see what Paul was talking about here. Look in verse 17, where Paul, back in... He recounts having to, him having to flee the city under threat, where he says, We were torn away from you, brothers. And we get a separate account in Acts chapter 17, verse 5, about this. And local opposition in Thessalonica had compelled the church to send Paul away earlier than anyone had wished. And Paul was expressing a deep feeling of loss for having been torn away too soon from this little church. And there's a Greek word that he uses here, a porphanidzo, which implies being orphaned. And it shows the deep connection that Paul had with these people. It reveals the heart of the pastor towards his church, where he says, We were torn away from you. It was like we were orphaned. And Paul wrote this to encourage this church that. He has not forgotten about them while he's been away from them physically. He says, I've been torn away from you physically, but not in heart. I'm still with you. I wish that I could be there with you, but I'm thinking about you. Look in verse 18 where Paul feels bad that he had been separated from them, but every attempt to visit them had been hindered by Satan in some way. And that Greek word translated hindered, it was interesting, it can actually also be translated being cut into. So every plan that we made, it felt like Satan was cutting into it somehow. And we don't really know the exact circumstances of this situation. We don't get a lot of details about what was Paul was talking about. But we do know from Paul's life and his ministry that he faced constant opposition and hardship on his missionary journeys. And even as we think about missions work today and people that are you know seeking to share the gospel in, in, in places that are far off or even in their own backyard... Uh, we still hear uh, stories today of suffering and opposition and hardship from Christians who are trying to bring the gospel into places where it feels like Satan has staked his claim. Here's what Calvin said about this, of talking about Paul being hindered by Satan. He said, Whenever the ungodly causes trouble, they are fighting under the banner of Satan and are his instruments for harassing us. But even as we think about that, one of my seminary professors, Bob Kara, actually wrote a really helpful little commentary on First and Second Thessalonians. And I won't read it in his classic high-pitched voice. But Dr. Kara said this, Although Satan has influence in the world, Paul acknowledges elsewhere that ultimately it is God who controls his travel plans. And the good news of that is that the prowling lion that we are warned about is on a leash and that prowling lion is on a leash by a sovereign God who is powerful. And look in, as we move into chapter 3. Look at verses 3 through 4. The Christians in Thessalonica also experienced depression and hardship while they proclaimed Christ, remember, in the shadow of Mount Olympus, just a few miles away from it. Remember, Thessalonica was a port city where a lot of pilgrims that were on their way to this kind of pagan site of Mount Olympus where the gods were said to have lived, They would oftentimes Thessalonica was the place where they entered in. And you have this massive city full of pagan temples, and these Christians there were proclaiming that these gods that you are seeking are false. There's one true and living God. And Paul said how they had turned from their pagan and idolatrous worship to serve the living God. He talked about that just a few verses earlier, and Paul was worried about them. But he's also reminding them that affliction and suffering are often part of the Christian testimony. And he had warned them about this. Do you see where he said, We kept telling you beforehand that this was going to happen, not only to us, but that you should expect it as well. And Jesus himself warned of this while he was on earth. John fifteen eighteen to 20 where Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of, of, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Words to his disciples. Look, the world has hated me. And it hated me first. And because of that, you should expect it's going to hate you too. And just as I have suffered and persecuted, you should not be ashamed when that comes upon you. And if we're honest... We hear those words of Jesus, and we read these words of Paul, and it's the part of the Christian life that we actively flee from. You know, you should expect suffering in this world. You're like, oh, great, that sounds amazing. Let me make that my life work, make that my life verse, right? When we think about this suffering that's coming, we actively flee away from it, but we're reminded over and over again that Jesus never promised a rose garden for his followers, did he? He never did. Jesus tells us to take up our cross daily, not kick up our feet indefinitely. Jesus calls us to follow him. You noticed in our confession of sin, Lord, we confess that we have followed too much the comforts of this world. And we've basically followed ourselves too much. We basically worshipped ourselves. And we tried to make things easy. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but there's this other side. Uh, just The world's going to hate you because it hates me. And if you are following me, as Christ says, they're going to hate you too. And so we're called to take up our cross daily. We're called to come to grips with the fact that uh, you know, this may come. And The reason that this text is important for us this morning is that Paul's also reminding us that hardship may come for claiming Christ as Lord. We don't actively seek it out, but we know and probably understand that it eventually it may come knocking on our door. And as we minister, which again, that word means serve or contribute. As we minister to others for the sake of Christ, I would remind you, number one, it's not just the pastor's job. We as elders are called to equip the saints. That's you for the work of what? Ministry. That as we all go out together, we will be met with opposition from a dark world that loves sin and as Ephesians 2 tells us, is following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. I don't know if you've had a discussion or you've tried to share the gospel with someone before or talk to someone about the things of the Lord, and it feels like you are just met with just a hateful response. Just a hateful. I felt this when I was on campus. Go and talk to students and just hateful. How dare you? What do you mean? Like I would tell students that they would come and ask about RUF because a lot of times they thought they saw RUF and they thought rough. They thought we were like a pet adoption ministry or something. And we would come, and they would come up and like, hey, tell me about RUF. We're like, well, it's RUF. It's Reformed University Fellowship. We're a Christian ministry on campus, and what we believe is that we're all sinners in desperate need of mercy, and Jesus is our only hope. And I mean, the response that I got met when they found out that it, I was not a, like a, a pet adoption agency, that I was actually a Christian ministry and that I had called them a sinner to their face, they didn't like that, as you can imagine. And we think about this in these moments where we've, we're we seeking to share our faith and it's easy to get discouraged and to wonder if God really cares or if our suffering is somehow related to God being mad at us because we haven't been faithful enough and we spiral around. Like, what's wrong with me and Lord, don't you see? And here's where the bad news, good news of the gospel comes in. We talk about this a lot. The bad news of the gospel is that none of us have been faithful enough. Remember, we just we just confessed, who can keep all the Ten Commandments? And the answer was... Nobody. And so none of us have been faithful enough. And when we think about our own righteousness, it has been cut into. It has been ripped to shreds by sin. And the bad news of this world is, uh, is that every bit of it has been in some way hindered or cut into by Satan. You think about all the ways in your family and your job and your personal life and just everything that you do and you, every bit of it feels like it's been cut into or hindered in some way by Satan. Satan. Think about your own sin. You're like, oh, God, I wish that I didn't have to confess that every single Sunday. But there it is, right at the top of the list, right there. Think about suffering that we face, evil, warfare that we see, personal conflict, betrayal, broken families, addiction, pride, arrogance, gossip, slander, selfishness. The list goes on and on and on. We look around and every bit of it feels like it has some way been cut into by Satan. And it's easy in those moments to feel like, Lord, don't you see? But there's where the good news comes in. The bad news of the gospel is that none of us has been faithful enough. But the good news of the gospel is that even in the midst of that, there is always hope. There is always hope in Christ. And that's our second point. Paul was talking about this ministry that's been hindered. But yet there's hope. So we see a hopeful ministry. Look at verses 19 and 20. Paul gives the reason why he's so anxious to come and see them. And one of the themes of First and 2 Thessalonians revolves around the second coming of the Lord. And we're going to talk about that in a few weeks as Paul gets to it. And Paul calls the Thessalonians, did you notice this in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 2? Did you notice that he called them, he said in verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Is it not you? And the Greek word for crown that Paul wrote would have brought to mind an olive wreath worn on the head of victors in war and athletics in the Greco-Roman world. I don't know if you remember, but years ago now, the Olympics actually came back to Athens, Greece. And part of the medal ceremony that we're used to now is, you know, you get the actual medal. But in, in, the, in the Greece games, what was really interesting is they actually made wreaths and they would put the wreaths on the head of all the medal winners. Now they, you know, other places will give flowers and stuff. But that was a really distinct thing for the Athens games is they actually wore one of these wreaths. And that's what we're talking about. That's the, the image that would have come up. And then that Greek word translated boasting, he said, so you're like our crown, and here's we boast, can also be translated rejoicing or glorying in. A couple of years ago, I was at RUF staff training in 2014, and there was a student that came up and gave his testimony. And the student and his campus minister were on the stage, and there were hundreds of us who were there. This is like our, we get together in the summer and the winter when I was a campus minister And this student came up and told us his story, and it was one full of just relational heartache and bereft of anything spiritual. As he was talking about I grew up and my you know, we never went to church, never heard about God, and my father was mean and you know, just this just this gripping testimony of heartache. And he was talking about, and the thing that he said is, he said, my campus minister was the first grown man who ever told me that he enjoyed spending time with me and that he was proud of me and it changed my life. It's like a 20-year-old like guy saying his campus minister was the first grown person, grew first grown man that had ever said, look, I like spending time with you and I saw what you were doing here and I'm just proud of you coming from your background, I'm proud. As you can imagine, the, you could hear a pin drop in this convention hall. Stunned silence as we heard this man share his heart. And he went on to talk about how Jesus had used his campus minister in a powerful way as he wrestled with the gospel and ultimately came to faith in Christ over hours and hours and days of meetings. And the campus minister, we sat there, we all knew him, and he beamed like a proud dad while his young man spoke of Christ. And the rest of us in the crowd responded not by praising the campus minister. Oh, good job, campus minister. We didn't do that. We just sat there and said, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. As this campus minister was beaming with pride as he looked at this young man whose heart had been changed and shaped by the gospel. And all of us in the room just went, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what he's talking about. As he thinks about how the Thessalonians had responded to the gospel, how it visibly changed their lives, he beams like a proud dad when he thinks about them and being included among God's people when Christ returned. He's like, you were once not God's people, but now you are going to be included, and I'm going to be with you in heaven when the Lord returns. And it just makes me happy when I think about that. Their salvation would make all the suffering that he endured worth it in the end. All this time that he had spent in Thessalonica building this church and wrestling with these folks and watching them wrestling with it. At the end of the day, he said, you know what makes it all worth it? That we're all going to be in heaven together and it's going to make it all worth it in the end. I had a similar thing happen to me a few days ago, actually, where I had gone to Ridge Haven a few weeks ago to go speak at camp like I normally do, and I just felt like an absolute hot mess the whole week. Tired, worn out, I felt like I was stammering over myself. I felt like none of my talks made any sense. You know, I'm sitting here talking, and I've got middle schoolers, you know, talking amongst themselves and leaning over, and it looks like I'm like, what am I doing wrong here? just felt completely off my game the entire week and just wondering why in the world am I here and I had a mom contact me a couple of days ago and told me that her daughters had heard me speak at Ridgehaven and had come to Christ after hearing the gospel I said okay I get it my response was not I am so amazing my response was praise God (laughs) praise God Because I felt like a scattered mess the entire week. I was reminded of my own weakness and my own inadequacy. I feel it all the time. I doubt my call on the drive to church every Sunday morning. What am I doing? And at the end of the day, you get stories like this. This mom's going, just thank you for sharing the gospel. And I say, thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. And when I think about those girls being brought into a saving relationship with Christ by grace through faith, it humbles me because it reminds me of the grace that's been shown to me. That was my story too. Grace coming to me, the gospel coming to me. That was the Thessalonian story, the gospel coming to them, being brought to bear. And you may have a similar story of someone you've seen come to faith after you've spent time with them or shared the gospel with them or walk through pain and suffering with them, and you look and you see a life changed and shaped by the gospel. In Revelation 4, we're given a picture of the throne room of heaven and the assembled elders representing the church throughout time. And what are they given? They're given crowns of gold, right? But they take those crowns off and they cast them before Christ on the throne, and they say, "'Worthy are you, O Lord.'" Our God to receive all glory. Did you notice when we sang holy, 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 there's a little line there in the second stanza. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. And this is what Paul means when he answers his own question in verse 20. And he rejoices in how God used his efforts, along with Timothy and Silas, to bring these people to faith. And he praises Christ for them when he thinks about their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And Paul's going to tell us more about the report he received from Timothy when he returned. And we're going to look at that next week. But I don't want you to miss in this moment the heart of the pastor for his flock. As Paul is saying, I love them, and I worry about them, and I pray for them, and I ask God to keep them from the attacks of Satan. Oh, all that's my heart for you too. I love you. I pray for you. I don't do it perfectly. I'm going to continue to disappoint you in some way. I'm just a guy in desperate need of God's grace. But I love you and I pray for you. And our elders love and pray for you. And we're praying. Even our last session meeting, we're praying and asking the Lord to keep this church from the attacks of Satan. Lord, please keep the flock care, uh, safe. But I really do love you and I want to see you grow in your love of Christ. I thank God for you. I pray that God will keep me here as long as he'll let me stay. We love it here. Your elders love you. They pray for you. We want to know you better and care for you better. And I thank God for this church, and I'm humbled by the chance to serve it. Oftentimes I'm like, I am amazed that there is anybody on planet Earth that gets in their car on a Sunday morning and drives past 100 million other churches to come to Grace. What a privilege and a humbling thing. And I thank God for you. And I want to see you grow in your knowledge and love of the Lord and see you kept safe. And we think about these two words, about Paul's words in this passage to this church that he obviously loved dearly. We remember the two big categories, hindered, right, and hopeful. Hindered and hopeful. And we've all been hindered or cut into by sin. None of us are perfect on our own. And part of truly understanding the gospel is, if, is finally admitting your need. Finally admitting that the crown that you have fashioned for yourself is dry and withered. Understanding the bad news of that. And we all have it. It's the thing that I take, that I put upon my head, that I feel like I have fashioned. And this is what gives me value and worth. It's my money or my family name or whatever it is. Fill in the blank. This thing that we look to to say, this is what makes me matter. This is what makes me important. And the bad news of the gospel stares you right in the face and says that crown that you were looking to is dry and withered because it is not connected to anything life-giving and it has no roots in and of itself. It is a dry, withered crown. And do you understand this about yourself? This morning, are you finally able to admit, maybe for the first time, despite a lifetime in church, that that crown that you're looking to is withered? That you are in desperate need. That is the entry point into the gospel. That you have to admit, I can't do this. Recognizing your own weakness. Recognizing your own inadequacy. Recognizing that God's holy, 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 and you're not, not, not. And in your arrogance and your pride, you think, I've got it all together. I can just work the magic in front of people and make it happen. Part of the Christian life is saying, I don't have it all together. My crown is dry. It's withered. Are you able to admit that, really, at the heart level this morning? Your own desperate need. The gospel is never going to be good news to you if you're still clinging to that withered crown. But there is hope, and that hope is in God. And he has written us a letter to encourage us while we struggle in this life. There's hope in Christ. Think about what Christ did. He was the one sent to suffer affliction in our place. Paul is saying suffering and affliction is coming. Jesus knew that. The one sent to suffer in our place. He says, I hope that the tempter has not tempted you in some way, as he's writing to the Thessalonians. Jesus tempted specifically by Satan. Look, I'll give you everything you see. Just bow down and worship me. And What did Jesus never do? He never gave in. Never. Sweat drops of blood, praying, Lord, please, please let this cup pass from me. But even if it won't, Lord, may you receive all glory as I am going to do what you sent me to do. And he took that withered crown. You ever thought about the fact Jesus wore a withered crown too? Jesus took that withered crown of thorns upon his brow and was quite literally cut into by the soldiers of Satan as he hung on the cross to win for us what? An unfading crown of glory that you didn't earn. That Christ earned. Isaiah 28.5, the prophet looks ahead and he sees and he says, In that day the Lord of hosts, the Lord will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. Christ will be the glory. Christ will be the crown. Jesus is our crown. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our boasting. Jesus is our victor. That's why we come in here and we don't praise ourselves, we praise Christ. We say, thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. You are our hope. You are our crown. You are our victor. Everything is of Christ. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. And the second we insert an I and a me into that equation, we've lost it. Like I said, I do the same thing every week. I throw the fastball down the middle, and what is it? Look to Jesus. Trust Christ. That's it. The good news of the gospel is that Christ did it all for you while you were his enemy. Almost done. Hang with me. We're landing the plane. Let's go. The thing is, is the good news of the gospel, when you realize that, that while you were once his enemy, he came to you and you have been saved by grace. When that gets in your bones, you can't think of doing anything but taking that crown and casting it before the Savior. Because you realize, I didn't win this crown. He says, hey, you're, I'm going to give you the crown, and you know what you're going to do? You're going to immediately take it off, throw it at his feet. This belongs to you, Jesus. This belongs to you. When that gospel good news gets in your bones, you can't think about wearing that crown on your head. You want to take it off as fast as you can and give it right back to Jesus. What gives us hope as we struggle and toil and labor in a broken world? It's hearing the words, well done, good and faithful. Enter into the joy of your master. And seeing Jesus face to face as he he beams as you're welcomed in. These lost ones that are now brought in, redeemed by grace. Welcome, enter into the joy of your salvation. Is that the hope of your heart? Is that the hope of your heart? In the midst of struggle and toil and anger and worry that Jesus is your hope. The hope of heaven purchased for you. You see, we've all been sent out into the battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've all felt like these Thessalonians busted up, discouraged. But we've been given a letter, haven't we? Mail calls come by someone who loves us very much to encourage us and exhort us to keep going. We've been given a letter, have we not? I'm coming back. I'm going to write and tell you that I love you. When we think about this letter that's been given to us by someone who loves us very much as an encouragement to keep going as we wait with patience, what does that letter say? The closing verses of your Bible, Revelation 22, 20, and 21. Here's what this letter says to you as you struggle and toil. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. The good news of this letter is this. While you are away on the battlefield, there is one who loves you very much, and he has given you a letter to remind you that he knows you and that he sees you and that he is coming back to reclaim you. Is that the hope of your heart? Even while it's hindered, it's hopeful, and both of those two things go together, and they all point to Christ in the gospel. I hope that's your hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that every bit of it's true. And as we have already sung, that you surrendered all for us. You are holy, holy, holy. And we pray that, Lord, you would take these words and remind us of your grace and your mercy. Remind us of the great cost that you paid. Lord, help us to finally take this withered crown off of our head, this thing that we're looking to, to give us significance. And, Lord, may we cast it before you and repent of it. And even as you have won for us a crown of victory because of your work on the cross, Lord, may we take that crown and throw it at your feet, realizing that it belongs to you, but may we stand in awe of your grace that you have brought us in, you've made us a part of your family, and you've given us a hope. And so in this life, as it feels like everything is being hindered and cut into by sin and Satan as we battle against the world, our own flesh and the devil, Father, give us hope, give us encouragement. Lord, give us a a bright hope of tomorrow because of Christ. And so it is through Christ's precious name that we come to you. And we pray all of these things. Amen.